Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Shelley Pittman bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Well, it's so hot outside that you could pour water on a cat. We tested that, by the way. Temperatures today felt like 110 degrees in Madison, with humidity and high actual temperatures pushing the upper end of your thermometer. Elsewhere in Dane County, the heat index inched to 114 degrees Fahrenheit. Temperatures in surrounding counties pushed a feels-like temperature of anywhere from 118 to 130 degrees. And as a reminder, cooling centers are open in Madison and Dane County and elsewhere. A list of them is online in Dane County on the Public Health Madison Dane County website. That's publichealthmdc.com. Now, of course, Rob McClure will have so much more on today's weather on our comprehensive report later on in the show. But as the heat index reaches a record height, so does the demand on the electric grid. While Wisconsin utilities and state regulators maintain this morning that the state's electric grid is ready for the high temperatures, some customers this afternoon are without power. About 1,800 We Energy's customers are without power as of 5.30 this evening, according to the company's outage map. These outages appear centered in Milwaukee and Appleton. Meanwhile, MG&E did not appear to have a significant number of outages as of the same time this evening. And speaking of energy, uh, Senator Tammy Baldwin is calling for a federal investigation into the 2018 merger of Energizer and Rayovac. The merger, Baldwin's Baldwin's office maintains, has led to Energizer's domination of the battery market. And her office asserts that the merger has precipitated the planned closing of two battery plants in Wisconsin, one in Fenimore and one in Portage. Senator Baldwin is calling on the Federal Trade Commission to conduct the investigation and a a retrospective analysis. The FTC has cleared the merger, had cleared the merger in 2018. And the State Department of Health Services is under special scrutiny from Republican lawmakers, this time over their handling of pandemic relief funds. DHS Secretary-designee Kirsten Johnson was grilled yesterday during a legislative audit hearing, reports the Wisconsin Examiner. State analysts found a report in in a report in May that the DHS had several shortcomings in its handling of pandemic funding. The most significant issue outlined, the department's more than $38 million purchase of over 1,500 ventilators. Analysts found that only a fifth of those machines had been deployed by March 2022. And as of the start of this year, six of the ventilators were regarded as lost. Other issues included a failure to establish written policies for reviewing grant applications and distributing federal aid to agencies. Secretary-designee Johnson maintained during yesterday's hearing that the department is implementing, or plans to implement, recommendations in the state audit. The University of Wisconsin Board of Regents established an operating budget yesterday for UW System Schools. Under that budget, though, all but two UW campuses are going to be carrying budget deficits through 2024. That's according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The system as a whole will have a deficit of about $60 million, which will be covered by savings. Campuses are considering cost-cutting strategies like layoffs, furloughs, and budget cuts. 
While UW-Madison and UW-Stout are expected to operate without deficits, many system campuses have struggled for the past decade. Republican lawmakers have held up additional funding for the UW system, saying campuses need to shore up their spending. The state uh, budget passed in June pulled $32 million from the UW system budget, the same amount Republicans estimated the system spends on diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. Those programs, of course, support students underrepresented on campuses, including students who are black, indigenous, and other persons of color, along with veterans, first-generation students, and women. The far-right conservative group Moms for Liberty is on the rise in the state, according to new reporting from investigative news outlet Wisconsin Watch. The right-wing effort organizes parents, particularly women, around school issues such as book banning, pride flags, and education about racism. The nascent group got its legs in 2021 during the pandemic. It now has chapters in most states, with over 125,000 members. In Wisconsin, Moms for Liberty chapters have been established in 10 of, of the state's 72 counties. Particularly active chapters are located in Ozaki, Kenosha, and Milwaukee counties. The group has been particularly active there. In Ozaki, the group unsuccessfully organized a recall of the school board, but was able to raise $50,000 for the effort. In Kenosha, the group shut down a meeting of the school board during a protest of its pandemic policies. Last night, prior to the GOP debates, the state organization attempted to host an event in Milwaukee featuring Senator Ron Johnson, but the event was later canceled. The Dane County Jail is experiencing an outbreak of COVID-19, according to a release from the Dane County Sheriff's Department. 49 people at the jail have tested positive and are being isolated. As a result, personal visits to those in jail are temporarily suspended. Programming for residents has also been put on hold. However, attorneys will still be able to meet with their clients. Those infected have been isolated in two cell blocks in the city county building and four units in the main facility. All residents and staff will be supplied with face masks. No infections have been reported among staff. And that's it for today's headlines. Now on to today's top stories. Today, state Democratic lawmakers introduced a new legislation designed to protect media outlets from frivolous defamation lawsuits. The so-called anti-slap laws have been adopted in 31 states, but not in Wisconsin. WORT producer Nate Carlin was there and has this story. The bill is designed to give media outlets recourse when they're faced with a type of targeted lawsuit often used to stifle journalists and critics. Those lawsuits are called slap suits, and they affect local and national media outlets alike. John Oliver, host of Last Week Tonight, explains. SLAP is an acronym that stands for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. These are frivolous suits with no legal merit, specifically designed to stifle public debate or dissent. And these happen all the time. The bill introduced today would give media outlets a new defense when faced with a slap suit. It would allow media organizations and individuals, the defendants, the ability to recover legal costs they incur when defending themselves. And it would give defendants a new way to ask a judge to throw frivolous cases out. More than 30 other states have enacted similar anti-slap laws that, among other things, allow defendants to recoup their legal costs. 
but Wisconsin isn't currently one of those states. Senator Minority Leader Melissa Agard, a Democrat from Madison, announced the bill in a press conference this morning. She says the legislation is critical in protecting First Amendment rights. And we know that there are, um, unfortunately, bullies out in the political world right now that are having a negative impact on the First Amendment right of information and free speech in our nation following the bad actions of Donald Trump. And it's vitally important to democracy that we make sure that we are strengthening our democracy and protecting free speech in the state of Wisconsin. Today's bill comes after a small-town Wisconsin newspaper recently prevailed in court after fighting a two-year legal battle against a Republican lawmaker. Over the past two years, the Wausau Pilot and Review has amassed hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees defending themselves against defamation. State Senator Cory Tomczyk, a Republican from Marathon County, sued the paper over the reporting that he had said an anti-gay slur to a 13-year-old boy at a county board meeting before he became a state lawmaker. Shireen Seward, founder and publisher of the paper, told WORT last week that even though the newspaper prevailed in court, they're struggling to keep operating. I can't tell you how many times I woke up in the middle of the night in the last two years thinking, okay, I mean, I'm worried about my staff. Am I going to lose my house? I mean, you think of all these things, and it's just such a, a horrific waste. The unique source of the newspaper's legal woes could make passage of the legislation an uphill battle. The bill would need significant support from across the aisle in order to pass the Republican-dominated legislature. Senator Agard says no Republicans have yet signaled support for the bill. The bill has been introduced in both chambers of the legislature. The assembly version of the bill was introduced by Fitchburg Representative Jimmy Anderson. And Agard, who called Tom Chick's lawsuit against the Wausau paper shameful, admits that there's a small likelihood that the bill passes this session. Last session, roughly only 2% of the bills that were brought forward by Democrats in the state Senate were actually provided the opportunity to have a public hearing. So we do realize that there is a bit of an uphill climb for this legislation to be able to pass. But we also know that Wisconsin is right now at a point where it is going to be turning corners. And the hope of having a more thoughtful and level democracy in our state, including the legislative process, is likely less than about 18 months away. A study by the Business and Human Rights Resource Center found dozens of verified slap suits in the United States in the past seven years, with hundreds globally. And Wisconsin may increasingly be a forum for the pernicious suits. In 2020, a small NBC TV affiliate in northern Wisconsin was the target of a slap lawsuit filed by the Trump campaign, which was later dropped. At issue, an ad by the liberal advocacy group Priorities USA. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Carlin. Chin-Chen Li is an MFA student at UW-Madison. Her art explores her Chinese heritage across multiple media types. She spoke with feature contributor Laura Schrader about the way her childhood in Luoyang and her family inform her art as part of a new feature, Near and Far, which explores the global, commu- global community here in Madison. Hello and welcome to Near and Far, a series about the connection between the local and global in Madison. I'm your host, Laura Schrader. How can art connect us across generations and cultures? This week, join me as we journey from the caves of central China to a small studio on the University of Wisconsin campus.
Hi, uh, my name is Xinchen Li, and I'm from China. I'm the third year MFA student from a UW Medicine Art Department. I came to America in 2016, and before that, I went to a university in China to study computer science for a year. So I wasn't thinking I'm gonna do art at all. Medicine, it's a really beautiful city. I remember the first time I visited it before I came here. It's really nice especially in the summer, so pretty with all the flowers. It's not too, too hot, but winter, it's just a little too cold. As her 3D printing pen hums, I become more and more impressed with Shen Li. What can't she do? The artist recently completed her MFA at UW-Madison. She is a jeweler. She's a sculptor. She does metalsmithing, stone setting, and woodworking. Oh, and she's getting into ceramics. In my undergraduate, I was focused on uh, jewelry making, metalsmithing and jewelry. And then when I came here, I kind of uh, expanded my medium to uh, installation sculptures, started using uh, ready-made objects. When I visit her studio, spools of filament surround us. She feeds them into the printing pen, which spits out hot threads. They form shapes before my eyes. Surrounding us are the faces of Shin Chen's family members, composed of these threads. <laughs> it have all my family members on the top as an earring, but you can see I don't have much member in my family. <laughs> do, your, do your family wear the earrings with their faces? They don't. <laughs> and this is my very first piece. I use, you know, Chinese element in it. Because before I didn't, you know, doing much about it. I don't know. I just didn't do much about it. <laughs> Why did you start? Because my mom, she's like, oh, I saw your work. Why there, is, there isn't anything related to you or where you're from? I'm like, make sense. I'm going to make one. <laughs> I grew up in a city called Luoyang. It's in the middle of China. And over there, we have a really famous like historical scene called Loman Grottoes. It's like a thousands of Buddhas carved. They to the south sit the Longman Grottoes, home to tens of thousands of Buddhist statues. They range in size from one inch to 57 feet. The towering figures date back to the fifth century, but most were carved over the course of 200 years and by several different generations. These statues, along with her childhood memories and family ties, have inspired Shinchen. She grew up with her grandmother, whose sewing machine echoed through Shinchen's childhood. Shinchen's recent exhibition at the Art and Literature Laboratory in Madison focused on how her childhood memories and experiences shaped imagery of objects by creating a remembrance of place. She chose furniture from the house she grew up in that has metaphorical and symbolic meanings. I try to create a space of, you know, nostalgia. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and exploring the intimacy, not only on the human body, but also in the, you know, in the space. Maybe make, you know, make the intimacy larger by immersive art. I have five pieces uh, in the art lead lab. Uh, there is a bed, and there is a cabinet, there is a wardrobe, and a clock, and a sewing machine on the floor. That's my grandma's story, and she's a she's a really amazing uh, quilt maker. And when I grew up, she made all my clothes. 
And the furnitures in my this installation, they are the furnitures from my grandparents' house. Yeah, and during the time, China wasn't really uh, fully industrialized. So when they trying to get new furniture, they will ask uh, the carpenters or the artisans to come to their house. And each, I think each artisan, they have their different design of how to making stuff. People can purchase this kind of furniture anymore. It's because right now people just go to IKEA. <laughs> Shinchen has taught jewelry making classes at Wheelhouse Studios in the lower level of Memorial Union. Most recently, she saw how art can connect people when teaching a ring making workshop. There were couples that came together and they make rings for each other, and also the daughter with their mom, they came and they make rings. So I feel the things about the jewelry making or the jewelry, it's the irreplaceable, the intimacy it can carry, and also the history. That's all for today. Reporting for WORT, I'm Laura Schrader. This has been Near and Far. Until next time, keep finding those connections. I really appreciate the quality uh, of the jewelry, its intimacy they can bring. And I secretly switch my major. <laughs> I bring them back with me and give them as a gift. Like, oh, that's what I made. See, like, that's my major. They were not happy. <laughs> Tonight, the Republican National Committee is going to host a debate for the Republican primary for president in Milwaukee. To bring attention to worker issues and to let the candidates know that they're watching, the Service Employees International Union held a rally in a march near the Pfizer Forum despite the brutal heat. Pat Reyes and is president of SEIU Madison, and Burnett Mahoney is a member and political organizer for SEIU Healthcare Michigan. They spoke from the rally with our producer, Nate Carlin, about what they hope to accomplish. Why don't you give me a start of what SEIU is, is doing today? rallying basically to make sure that the Republicans are aware that we have a strong voice in elections and we feel it's very important for them to take note of the fact that it's the workers that keep the economy moving. It is the workers that keep jobs open and and the corporations functioning because without the workers there is no corporation, pure and simple. And so the, the trickle-down theory that the Republicans like to uh, count on really does not work, and you need to build the middle class to have a strong, functional economy. And uh, what, what kind of issues do you hope the candidates uh, talk about or ad- address tonight? I think it's important that they address the fact that workers need to have a voice. We need to make sure that people across this country have health insurance, have the ability to not have to choose between electricity and medication or choose between having a home or child care. It's getting awfully expensive to have kids in this country, and we need to make sure that we continue to have a functioning country. And if people are afraid to have kids because they can't afford it, how are we going to continue to prosper? And also a message is to 
let them know that we're reaching out to all workers, young and old, that if they are not willing to at least support us in our efforts to build a better economy, we're stronger together. All workers deserve a union, number one, and they should be able to listen to our demands and hear us out about how we can make it easier for the working person to take care of their family. And another important factor is the fact that we need to get rid of the racism, of the bigotry, of the hate, and recognize that all people are human. All people deserve the right to have a voice, have the, have the opportunity to vote, and to have their votes count. So how's the, the feeling on the ground? What's it like in Milwaukee? I know it's a very hot day, but what else is going on? It is very warm. We have a large group of people. It is very exciting. You know, we have hundreds of people here making the point, in spite of the heat, that the voices of Americans, of the working Americans, is important. We're the 99% that is making this country run. And without us, the politicians wouldn't have any to be working on. They would be unemployed. So you need to pay attention to the workers, to the retired, to the black, to the brown, to the LGBTQ people, because all of them have a voice, and those voices are raising up every day more and more. Yeah, can you talk to me a little bit about the uh, Unions for All um, movement? What is that? So Unions for All, basically, I'm from Michigan, Detroit, Michigan, and we all know what the automotive industry did for the world. And Michigan, eight years ago, was deemed a right-to-work state. And this is an example of what collectively we could do as workers and our voices. The governor of Michigan actually the right to work has been expired. So as a home care worker before right to work, we were organized, 55,000 home care workers in Michigan, where we were fighting for better wages for our families and for the community and advocating for senior citizens and people with disabilities. So now with the right to work expired, we have a chance to organize again. So that means all workers, fast food, retail, all workers have the right to negotiate their working conditions, better wages, to be respected, protected, and, like I said, better wages. All right. You, you mentioned uh, health care, child care, and better wages. Are there, are there any other policies you wanted to, to focus on? The respect that all workers matter, our voices matter, and that if you are willing to work with us to make it easier for everybody, then when we vote, you win. Also, when you win, we will hold you accountable. We will continue to work on issues that matter most to working families, to working people and their families, the community. Yeah, if, if, you, if you don't live up to what you say you're going to do for workers, then we, we will recall. find somebody that can do it. That's right. It's recall. We will. You will be recalled or you will not be voted back in the next time. And voters' rights is very important. Racial justice is very important. Fair elections, the environment. We're, we're in the middle of climate change, and oh, can we feel it. When you look at the forest fires in Maui, the forest fires in Canada, all of that is impacted by climate change and putting very, very negative impact on the organism that the Earth is. You know, in order to keep the Earth going where we can sustain on it, we have to make changes. 
All right. Well, that was all my questions. Do you guys have anything else you want to add? I definitely wanted to say there's power in unity. And together, we are stronger. And if you are willing to make the country better, then you have to listen to the voice of the people. Sarah Rodriguez is a registered nurse, and she also happens to be the lieutenant governor here in Wisconsin. Recently, she sat. Recently, pardon me. Recently, she launched her own podcast, The Rodriguez Report, where she talks with Wisconsinites about the issues that matter to them. Earlier today, on a public affair, she sat down with host Carousel Baird to discuss the commonalities she found between the many diverse communities in Wisconsin. I'm always intrigued by when when you know our state leaders come in and they really tell the story that's so different than what we hear sometimes in the media of divided Wisconsin. We certainly feel divided. We certainly sometimes look divided on election day. But in reality, the conversations that you're having, people have the same needs no matter where you go. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, of really paralleling the similarities between city and rural, between Milwaukee and Madison, and then out in the farms? Yeah. So, and I live in Waukesha County. So I absolutely get to talk to a wide range of people from mm-hmm. all political spectrums. If I chose to not talk to Republicans, I probably wouldn't have as many friends in mm-hmm. Waukesha County as I do. To, I would run out of people. Yes, as I do today. And uh, so I've been talking to folks all across the state. And I will tell you some of the consistent areas that people bring up is healthcare. That is one area that I talk to people about across all Wisconsin, that it is becoming increasingly unaffordable to be able to get the healthcare that people need. And that's just a tragedy, especially as a nurse, as somebody that has worked within healthcare of their entire lives. I've seen those gaps that we have across our healthcare system. But whether it's rural areas, even being able to access uh, the health care that they need. They have to come into the city sometimes to be able to get the services, but also within the cities themselves. We've got folks who need to be able to access care, and they aren't able to do that even in the cities. A couple other areas that are consistently come across uh, that I talk to people about is housing, which is an area that we are struggling with all across the nation, but particularly in Wisconsin. If I go to rural areas, if I go to the tribes, if I go to the cities, they all tell me the same thing, that they need more roofs. In fact, I was in La Crosse not that long ago, and I was talking to some folks out there within a healthcare system, and they were trying to recruit a physician to be able to come a very high level skilled physician to come to the area and they had two problems recruiting that physician number one they couldn't find housing that was a, a real issue for them crazy number two childcare. Mm-hmm. so they were telling me that this physician called almost 30 child care centers and were put on the waiting list for over 20. And the other ones didn't put them on the waiting list because their waiting list was too long. long. It was too long. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were talking about this earlier offline. My kids are 14 and 16, and I do remember that dance for childcare, but it was not as critical as it is today. I don't remember having to call 
30 places to be able to find childcare for my for my children. And that's what I'm hearing from parents today is we went to a childcare center even the other day, this last week, and they were saying that people call them when they get pregnant or yes. when they're thinking about getting pregnant right. to be able to see if there's going to be an open spot. That's insane. It's insane. It is insane. And you, we know in Wisconsin, we've got a workforce issue as well. We have two and a half unemployment rate, percent unemployment rate in Wisconsin. That is breaking records over and over and over again, two and a half percent compared to the national average of three and a half percent. So we are knocking it out of the park economically here. We have a 66 percent worker participation rate in Wisconsin compared to 62 percent nationally. We are doing fantastic economically. However, if we do not solve these issues, if we do not put effort and energy into these issues, whether it's health care, housing and child care, we are going to struggle because people are going to either not come to Wisconsin to be able to work yeah, or they're going to have to take themselves out of the workplace because they can't find appropriate, affordable child care for their kids. Well, let's sort of break down all of these issues and, and, and see, you know, how much we can get to in our hour. Um, let's start with health care and uh, Medicaid expansion, particularly. Talk to us about the issue of Medicaid expansion, this has been a thorn, uh, re- really actually sort of a black eye for Wisconsin nationally. We're one, I believe, of only 11 states in the country. Ten now. Ten. It's, Ten. I mean, how much longer does it take for our state to realize the importance of participating in Medicaid expansion? Explain to us what that is. Explain yes. to us why it's important and and. What is holding us back from being on the other side of that equation? Why aren't we with the 40 other states? So that's a great question, Carousel. And we should expand Medicaid, or it's called Badger Care here in Wisconsin. Yes. So this is from the Affordable Care Act. So, you know, over a decade ago, this is something that was put out there as policy that we could expand our Medicaid coverage and the federal government would match 90%. So we are leaving dollars on the table that are going to other states. These are dollars that could come home to Wisconsin. And we are only one of 10 states that has not expanded Medicaid. Uh, And because North Carolina just did it, they just um, expanded again. And we are the only state that would actually save money on their Medicaid budget today because we expanded in Wisconsin but we didn't expand to what the federal government wants us to. So we are missing out on that 90% match for a portion of who qualifies for Medicaid today. And that would give us $1.6 billion, with a B, dollars uh, every year that we could be saving on our Medicaid. Plus the dollars we would get from the federal government to expand it to what the Affordable Care Act requires. So... I, one of the podcasts, and if you if you listen to it, I talked to a woman named Peggy. Uh, she's over 65, so she qualifies for Medicare. But many people may not know, but if you have an inpatient procedure or something with Medicare, there's a 20% copay. And her and her husband uh, made $100 over 
the limit to qualify for Medicaid, and she needed her knees replaced. And they could not afford it. They could not afford the surgery if they didn't have Medicaid to be able to help with that 20% copay. So, and if we expanded Medicaid, that would help them? Yes. If we expanded Medicaid, then that $100, they would be able to qualify for, for Medicaid at a much higher limit in terms of the dollars that they're making today. So Peggy divorced her husband of over 30 years to qualify for Medicaid. That's what she had to do. And that, for me, is shameful in Wisconsin. We should be able to take care of our own. And nobody should have to divorce their spouse to be able to qualify for the health care that they need. Um, and it is, it's just a tragedy here. And she even told me it's not just about being able to afford the health care. But she said she knows there's a worker shortage. She's now she's got a great knee, right? So she's able she to can she can work. She goes, I would be happy to be at the grocery store bagging groceries. I would be happy to work at my local store and be able to help them out so they don't have to close. I would be happy working at that local watering hole, that local bar. Uh, but I can't do that, she said, because Otherwise, I make too much money to be able to qualify for Medicaid. And I know with the chronic illnesses that she has that she's going to need that support moving forward. So it's not just the dollars that we're missing out on from the federal government, but we're also missing out on that econo those economic dollars of people who could be working today in Wisconsin to help with this workforce shortage that we have, who are watching their dollars and aren't going to be making any more so they continue to qualify for the health care that they need. Welcome back, WRT. It's now time for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru Rob McClure. And thanks to our engineer, Lauren. Well, I don't know if today's high temperature set a new record or not because I haven't seen a finalized reading from the reporting station here, but uh, one record we certainly have in the bag is our daily minimum reading. The old record is 75 degrees set back in 1947, and the thermometer dropped no lower than 78 during this past overnight. And we'll be lucky even to reach, the, I think, the low 80s before this coming midnight, given the active winds that we'll have this evening and dew points way up in the mid-70s. So uh, I'm guessing 78 will be the new figure. Today's high temperature record uh, is 98. That was also set back in 1947. And so far as I can tell from the hourly readings out at the airport, we uh, may have got stopped short of that by a couple of degrees. I think 96 or 97, but we'll find out for sure tomorrow, I guess. Well, well, just uh, for interest this evening, I've added station plots to the visible satellite image of uh, southern Wisconsin and northern Illinois that we have linked up in the featured graphics on the WORT weather webpage. The image covers the last four hours or so, so you can see temperatures and dew point readings uh, at reporting stations basically across this part of the upper Midwest out into central Iowa and Minnesota. 
And you can see there the 100-degree isotherm lifting northeastward out of uh, Iowa and across southwestern Wisconsin by about 2 or 3 o'clock this afternoon, driving temperatures to 103 at Boscobel, 101 at Reedsburg and the Dells, and 100 at uh, Lone Rock and at Mauston. The 100-degree readings went up even further north and east than that. 80-degree uh, dew point readings, which are quite rare in this neck of the woods, also showed up in a handful of places, though uh, 77 or 78, uh, even 79, were uh, much more common. Those were the readings here basically through much of the afternoon and certainly plenty damp enough. The record high dew point actually ever recorded in Madison is 84, if I'm not mistaken, so we are starting to get up uh, into that territory one other thing you can observe from the upper Midwest readings is that the source region of the highest heat and moisture is still down to our southwest in Iowa. Uh, but note from the wind flags, if you're looking at the water vapor image, uh, which are also present on there, that the, our winds are from the southwest. So the very most energy-laden air, I'm afraid, is still on its approach towards us. Fortunately, it's going to pass over southern Wisconsin during this coming overnight when the sun is down. But that'll still make her a very uneasy night of sleeping if you don't have air conditioning, likely uh, noticeably worse even than last night. If you have a look at the uh, water vapor image of the continental U.S., which is linked up uh, at the top of the featured uh, images on the WORT weather webpage, you can see the uh, remnant moisture and vorticity from Hurricane Hillary lifting northward over the Great Basin. That was back on Monday at the beginning of the image sequence there. Up and around the upper ridge it goes, and that's uh, the upper ridge has been uh, kind of broiling the center of the country over these past several days. While Hillary's energy originally drew the body of the upper ridge kind of northwestward for a while, the center of clockwise rotation has steadily refocused south, uh, south and southeastward since then, down towards about southwestern Missouri currently. That's allowed cooler air up in Canada to, be, to begin making progress south again. And it will slowly work into southern Wisconsin at least by later tomorrow, though uh, somewhat enthusiastically until a wave that's currently uh, visible on the water vapor out over southern British Columbia passes north of us on Friday, and that'll help swirl that cold air to its backside southward in its wake. So stronger north-northeasterly winds by at least uh, later Friday into Saturday should be sending the temperatures over the weekend down just into the lower, possibly mid-70s for highs both days, uh, with uh, temperatures uh, perhaps additionally subdued by uh, what I think will be copious uh, cumuliform cloud cover during the days. Precipitation uh, still doesn't appear to be on, in the offing, despite the enormous change in temperatures that will be coming up. Uh, I mentioned last week that I thought we'd be dry for quite a while. A handful of models do produce some uh, thunderstorm cells later tonight in tomorrow, but into tomorrow. But uh, despite the enormous pool of uh, potential upward-directed energy that's around us, I don't foresee any uh, trigger that would be able to overcome uh, comparatively dry and warm air in the column above us to get convection going. The high-resolution models are uh, also unenthused about convection during this oncoming couple of days uh, during the cool-off. So uh, on to the details for this evening. Tonight will be uh, cooler but only slightly less miserable than today was, with uh, temperatures only grudgingly descending down uh, through the 90s first then through the 80s to a low probably around 80 or 81. We might get down into the upper 70s. Dew points will also not concede much territory, hanging up, I think, in the mid-70s most of the night on southwesterly winds, uh, which will come down to 5 to 10 miles per hour. Skies will remain mostly clear. 
Tomorrow, the first half of the day uh, shouldn't be terribly different than uh, this morning was, with temperatures climbing back above 90 most places, I think, except perhaps to the far north and east part of the listening area. Southwesterly winds will be uh, somewhat lighter than today, veering slowly west and northwest through the day at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Dew points will remain very uncomfortable in the mid-70s, but both temperature and dew points should start to ease down finally in the late afternoon and in the evening hours for a slightly more comfortable sleeping night in the upper 60s for the temperatures on veering north to northeasterly winds at 4 to 8 miles per hour. Uh, mid and high cloud cover uh, may also start to increase as we go overnight and into Friday morning. And Friday is a bit of a tough call with a cloud cover. I'm expecting a bit of uh, both high and mid-level clouds along with some cumulus development perhaps as we start to cool a bit more. Temperatures will reach the low 80s on light easterly winds with dew points still in the upper 60s. A more concerted frontal boundary should veer winds north and northeast late Friday or in the overnight into Saturday. We may see some showers pop up at that time. I think only briefly though as they pass through. Temperatures will uh, drop to the lower mid-60s in the overnight, uh, recovering then only to the lower mid-70s Saturday as north and northeasterly winds ramp up to 10 to 17 miles per hour during the day. Uh, thick diurnal cumulus may also expand into some strata cumulus overcast, I think, for a while on Saturday, but clear out again for the overnight. And we'll be back in uh, similar temperature territory on Sunday, up in the low 70s, but with lighter northeast to east winds that day. The temperature currently down here at the station on Bedford Street is 93 degrees. The dew point is way up at 79 degrees. Uh, skies are crystal clear overhead. Winds are out of the southwest at 6 miles per hour. And the uh, barometer is falling at 29.81 inches of mercury. We go now to August 1965, when Madison became home to a national anti-war effort, said no-no to some go-go dancing, and solved a sticky campus development problem. Stu Lovatan has that news and more from 58 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, August 1965 As the month opens, a coalition of peace and civil rights groups forms the National Coordinating Committee to End the War in Vietnam to coordinate the activities of dozens of organizations leading up to the International Days of Protest in October. The National Committee leases a three-flat at 341 West Mifflin Street for its headquarters and names Frank Emspach, co-chair of the Madison Committee to End the War in Vietnam, to chair the effort. Emspach quits his job as a project assistant in clinical oncology at the UW and thus loses his deferment and gets his draft notice almost immediately after giving a nationally televised interview. Fortunately for the National Committee and MSPAC, he is classified 1Y after his physical and would be inducted only in event of a declared war or national emergency. Hoping to help make sure that doesn't happen, about 50 picketers organized by Evan Stark in the Student Peace Center protest the Union Theater appearance by Vice President Hubert Humphrey on the 23rd. Humphrey is not impressed. If they can show us how to get out of Vietnam without the communists getting in, he tells the cheering delegates to the National Student Association Convention, 
We'll put the placards around here in the Hall of Fame rather than the Hall of Shame. On the 27th, Mayor Otto Feske issues a series of guidelines for how discotheque dancers should dress at the city's four clubs employing go-go girls. Sensual elements, the new rules state, quote, should not become so blatant that they completely overshadow all other elements of the dancing or become the dominant interests of the spectators. Also, dancers should be covered at least to the level, quote, as is acceptable on city beaches. Police Chief Wilbur Emery, citing what he calls, quote, a breakdown in moral standards due to the growing number of discotheques, had asked Feske to issue the standards. A spiritual cornerstone for three generations of Madison's black residents is no more, as St. Paul's African Methodist Episcopal Church holds its last service at 631 East Dayton Street on August 29th. The structure was built for Bethel Lutheran in 1887, bought by St. Paul's and moved to 625 East Dayton Street in 1902, and moved to 631 in 1928. The congregation will move into the former Central Lutheran Church Building, 402 East Mifflin Street. The south side of University Avenue between Lake and Park Streets is home to many homes and businesses, including the culturally important Three Bells Tavern and Lorenzo's and Paisan's restaurants. But the 700 and 800 blocks are sandwiched between the 3,260 residents of the southeast dorms and the campus proper and the university has plans to put the land to a higher and more profitable use. The regents already own the half-blocks fronting on West Johnson Street directly across from the dorms. Now they want to use a dummy corporation, the Wisconsin University Building Corporation, to buy the rest of the land, through negotiations if possible, by the force of eminent domain if necessary. Then they'll build housing and offices for graduate students, and turn the remaining land over to a nonprofit called the University Park Corporation, which they created and control. Then the University Park Corporation will lease the land, maybe back to the current owners, for development. They call the whole project Murray Mall. But the current merchants and restaurateurs are not keen to lose and then have to lease the land they already own, so they've created their own corporation, the Lake Park Corporation. They want the Madison Redevelopment Authority to create an urban renewal project under which the MRA would buy their land, then sell it back to Lake Park for a coordinated development. University President Fred Harvey Harrington and other administrators are sympathetic, but the regents are not. Even when the man they made president of the University Park Corporation, University Vice President and Business Manager A.W. Peterson, asks them to join in the city's urban renewal application, they say no. The city moves ahead with its application anyway, but soon finds out that the university's opposition has real repercussions. The Federal Housing and Home Finance Agency cancels a $125,000 planning grant because its earlier approval was based on university support. As long as the regents maintain their opposition, the city is foreclosed from federal funds. And the regents, who are still smarting over how the city mishandled another planning grant and almost cost the university $9 million in federal support, are firm in their opposition. It was President Harrington who solved that earlier crisis. In mid-August, it's the man Harrington named the university's first chancellor, Robin Fleming, 
who solves the Murray Mall mess. His plan, satisfy the city by creating an urban renewal project, satisfy the university by reserving the 700 and 800 blocks for academic and related use, and satisfy the merchants by relocating them with parking to the 600 and 900 blocks. Within a week, the council meets in special session to endorse the concept. Two days later, on August 20th, the regents agree, voting unanimously to join the city and MRA in applying for a $125,529 urban renewal planning grant for the four blocks. The application, which the council unanimously approves on October 14th, also seeks $2.6 million in federal funds if the plan is approved and developed. Harrington's appointment of one of the country's leading labor mediator arbitrators. Fleming will serve as president of the National Academy of Arbitrators in 1966-67, has paid off in an unexpected but not unprecedented way. And August is a mournful month for the Madison school system, as school board president Glenn Stevens is buried. Stevens was in his 14th year as board president and 38th year as a member when he died at age 73. The Chicago native graduated from the UW Law School in 1916 and returned to Madison after serving as an infantry captain during World War I. He was active in several legal associations, the Presbyterian Church, and the Zor Shrine. On the 24th, Mayor Otto Feske appoints another younger attorney and veteran, labor lawyer Dick Cates, as Stevens's successor. A Marine veteran in World War II in Korea, Cates served as the Chief Deputy Dane County District Attorney and as a state special prosecutor before founding the state's leading labor law firm, Lawton & Cates. In 1956, Cates unseated Republican State Representative Carol Metzner, sponsor of the law which killed the Frank Lloyd Wright Monona Terrace Plan by setting a height limit of 20 feet. After his one term in the Assembly, Cates did not seek re-election. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer was David Aaron. Special thanks to our feature contributors, Stu Levitan, Laura Schrader, and the public affair host, Carousel Baird. She had a help out from Jade Isiri Ramos. Thanks to her as well. Lauren Hicks engineered tonight's show, and Nate Carlin produced the newscast. Shelly Pittman is the news director and occasional on-air host at WRT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. 